Okay. The crowd isn't as big this evening. It must mean they got tired of church history already. Um, I can't quite understand that, but there's many people that do understand that. Probably ones that aren't here for sure. Um, but anyways, I do want to hear from you just a little bit. Dave did say um, it is your time, and I agree with that, even though I can't spend a lot of time asking questions because there's so much to, to cover. Um, just to start with, why study church history? Anybody? As you thought, I know I gave some points, but I don't just, not just asking for the points I gave. Why do we study? What, what, and probably everything about studying church history that you enjoy or that you see as the importance of studying church history is probably your gift to the church. But anybody, why, what, what's special about these men that we are going to study or what's special about going back into history and studying? What, have, what, do, what value is there? Okay, structure. That's true. Okay, understanding where we came from. Anyone else? There's a lot of things you don't have to experience. A lot of things you don't have to experience. I had somebody tell me different last night after I was finished talking. I was a little surprised. I was like, I really don't like experiencing things bad the second time, even though I do sometimes. But anyways. He didn't think there was as much importance in church history as maybe what I do. And that might be difference in gifts, too. Anyone else? Yeah, that's kind of what Alvin said. Well, I think that's big. Now, why would we have to make mistakes twice, right? Even though we often do, we can learn from other people's mistakes. Okay, well, we're going to get started in today's um, lesson of uh, church history. And today we're going to get into... Oh, come on. Why is that not? I'm going to need somebody's help here again. Virgil's not around. Anybody? Chris? I don't know why. It just doesn't go to flip to the next screen. Okay, you got it. Try, try that. No, it doesn't. Okay, thanks. The resurrection people and the persecuted people. Um, I would like to spend more time on my timeline, but I realize you can hardly see it, so I'm not, unless we have time in the end to go over it. Um, I'm going to just shorten our timeline here. I do want to say this, very interesting. Um, creation was about um, 2000, or it was probably 4000 BC, and we're at about 2000 here. Um, today. Um, and of course, right in the middle of the cross. Everything before, create, uh, before the cross is pointing towards the cross. Everything since the cross goes back to the cross or points back to the cross. Um, and that's almost the center of, of where we're at today. But on our timeline here, I'm going to make it a little shorter and I'm going to give a 300 year spectrum now. And that's what we're going to cover today. Um, in our 300-year spectrum, we have the first, we're going to start at A.D., A.D. 4. Somebody tell me what happened A.D. 4. Christ was born, A.D. 33. Crucifixion, A.D. 70. Fall of Jerusalem. Um, A.D. 40, does anybody know what happened there? That was the Jerusalem conference, or it was A.D. No, I don't have that exact date, so we'll, we'll leave that one. Um, A.D. 
90. Does anybody know what happened then? I should probably make this a little smaller back here. What happened AD 90? Just about right. This book of Revelation was written. Um, and AD 100 is the end of the apostles. That's when John died. Okay? The end of the apostles happened when John died. So, we have another 200 years to 313. And anybody remember that date? That's where we're going to end today. What happened in 313? Council of Nicaea. Uh, Edict of Milan. Okay? The Council of Nicaea was 1325. Edict of Milan is basically when Constantine came. And that was the watermark. Things changed dramatically after that. It went where nobody was allowed to be a Christian or you were persecuted. Not quite, because persecution was slowing down and speeding up. But a lot of ups and downs of persecution in this time. But to the place where Constantine said everybody had to become a Christian. Okay? And by this time or soon after this, 90% of the world claimed to be Christian. From nobody. Is that That's a good question. The Jews definitely became persecuted more, but they were persecuted with the Christians throughout most of the throughout most of this year. year okay, so throughout most of this time, they were being persecuted with the Christian. Um, let's just make this. Um, Let's call this, does anybody, we say this was the resurrected to AD 100, is the resurrected or resurrection people. It's kind of easier to say. Um, another word I have for this group of people is apostolic. I think I pronounced it wrong yesterday. The apostolic age. I think all of us have heard what that is. Many of us probably don't know what it is, but somebody help me out. What is the apostolic age? We'll talk about that. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit. And that was this 100 years right in here. Okay? And then we have 200 years right in here, and we'll call that the persecuted church. And that's spelled wrong. Um, and this is the time. Now, obviously, the persecuted church was throughout this whole time. But this time, from here, 80, the apostolic age where John died at 8100, to 313 is where a great part of our early church fathers that we think of today, the polycarts, the... Um, well, I'm going to, we'll talk about five of them today, okay? By the way, Dave talked about marriage. Does anybody know who made the quote? Um, I have it in here. Two shall come together as one. Was it before this man made that quote? We didn't think of marriage like that before. Ken and Ellen, do you know who it was? Um, Tertullian, which we'll talk about a little bit. He was the one who really spoke about in marriage, husband and wife come together and become one. Okay, we'll get into that in a bit. Let's get into the apostolic age or the apostolic era. Um, that was 33 to 100 AD. What is that age? What happened then? What took place? Okay, it's when the apostles. And who were the apostles? The disciples, right? And Paul was considered one of the apostles. Um, it was their time period. Now, this is an interesting time period. And I was listening to John MacArthur a little bit um, on a podcast. And he was talking, the, uh, the Pentecostals definitely talk a lot about this age. And, of course, um, this is the age where there's um, the time period of the apostles. 
Now, there's one book in the Bible that most of the history is written in this age. What book is that? The book of Acts. That's right. Um, very little history is found in the rest of the books. There are more theology and doctrine. Um, but the book of, of Acts tells you a lot of things. And we'll um, maybe get into that a little bit. What is the apostolic age? The, in Christianity, the apostolic age is the period from the death of Jesus until the death of the last of the 12 apostles. It holds special significance in Christian tradition as the age of direct apostles of Jesus. Um, so we're just going to talk a little bit about the apostolic age. Most of what we learn in our Bible stories, Sunday school stories, church, um, and the New Testament is found in this short period. Okay? New Testament period. Now before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the what? The Gospels. When did they take place? Before the church or after the church? Before the church, okay? So they wouldn't really be part of the apostolic age. No period of history is more assimilated to our lives and become part of who we are as this period. The people in this period are our people. We know them personally. At least we think we do. And the good ones we hold up as good and people that we are like. And the bad ones we hold them up as Judas. Well, we kind of consider them like ISIS or terrorists or really, really bad people. Um, it's interesting how we think of these people. A question we should ask ourselves. Now, here's a good question. Who was Jesus? Was he a Christian? Was he a Gentile? Was he an American? He was a Jew. <laughs> he was a Jew. Yes, he was a Jew. Now, it's easy to say, but do we really think of him that way? We think of Jesus as a Christian, right? Jesus was a Jew. He really was. And he thought like a Jew. Uh, he also thought like Christ, okay? But as a person on earth, he lived like a Jew. He went to the synagogue. He did the thing Jewish people did. He didn't do the things that we as Christians do, right? Yes, yeah. Get what I'm trying to say? We think of, we think of Jesus and we think of these New Testament people with our glasses. Not with the glasses of the people back there. Right? Who do you think of as when you... That's just how we think of them. Um, most of the early church is found in the book of Acts. So what we know about the apostolic age is mostly written in the book of Acts. The history that we read about the New Testament is completely accurate. Found and inspired by the word of God. Another interesting thing about this era is what we read about in that era or in that age is, um, it is written by God. Inspired, Right? What is written about the rest of the age, is it inspired? When I read a book about um, Polycarp, or I read a book about Tertullium, or any history, do we know it's completely accurate? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Probably not really, because you can read a lot of history books and read a lot of different things. But we know about this first section. It is accurate. It's inspired. It's right on. We know exactly it, it, what it is. Um, but although we read and know it is completely inspired, it's the gospel truth like we would say it, um, this, this apostolic era, this book is still left to our interpretation. And believe me, there's a lot of different interpretations of the book of Acts. Unfortunately. We read the book of Acts from a Western world view, too, on top of that. Okay? Um, 
I probably won't get into the different interpretations, but there's many, many of them. Very, very interesting if you look at that. Just a question for us. Um, and we look at the book of Acts to answer this question. The, I'll say the um, Charismatics look at the book of Acts to answer this question. When, we get the Holy, when the Holy Spirit came into the lives of the people in the book of Acts, did they come when they became Christians or did they come later? There's four places in the book of Acts to talk about. Is he right? Is he wrong? Both. Some were later, some were right then. Now, if you, listen, if you talk to a charismatic, he'll say, oh, they came later. No, it came both. It wasn't consistent. Uh, so, anyways, well, we leave that one. Well, I will say this. If you go to the first Corinthians, you'll find out... Um, Paul made it very clear that when we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit. But it didn't happen every time in the book of Acts. So there's an interpretation of how does it really happen? Do we need to be filled with a, a new Holy Spirit after we be, or we're converted like the Charismatics would say we do? Um, there's interpretations going on in there. Let's, let's look at the understanding the apostolic age. This was an age of transition from Judaism to the Christian church. Um, I'm just going to read this quote. It's an interesting quote. This, is, by the way, is if you go to Faith High School, you get to study in this book. Many Faith High School students would say it's not so interesting. I thought it was very interesting, but it is very deep. Uh, but here's, here's just a quote. As the era of the Old Testament flowed into that of the New, there was far more blending of belief and practice than clear lines of demarcation. There was no sharp Judeo-Christian divide. Jesus' followers were Jews who were utterly unaware that they were in the ground floor of Christian faith. Now, that might be a little hard to digest, but the point I want to make, and the point that's made, is when the early church was started, they didn't all of a sudden say, we're Christians. And now we do like the Beaches do, or, or like the Christians do throughout generations. No, they were who? Who were they? Jews. All the Christians in the beginning were Jews. All of them. Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church was probably filled with only Jews for a long time. Now, what changed some of that, or what changed it? Well, maybe we'll get to that a little bit. So, so when we talk about Christians the first 100 years, we're talking from a Jewish culture mostly. mostly. Um, the early church up to the destruction, or maybe I should ask this question, when did this change dramatically? I'm going to step back and make this point. This is so true, but in our minds, we believe Peter and even Paul to be Christian, not Jewish. Actually, they perform much more like a Jew than we do as Christians today. Much more. They went to the synagogue. Now, I know we all say they went to Sunday church too, but I think they went to both. Worshipped on Sunday and Saturday at first. Well, wow. I can't say that for factual, but I'm quite certain it may have been that way. Um, so what changed it the most? And there was this change going on, but what was the great thing that changed? It was AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish church, or the center of the Christian church, but especially the Jewish church. Peter was, was bishop of, well, not sure, maybe James was bishop of the church of Jerusalem. Later, um, later on, when Jerusalem was destroyed, he moved to, to Rome. Most of this changes at the destruction of Jews. After the destruction of Jew Jerusalem, there were only two groups of Jews. One was the Pharisees, 
there was many groups of Jews before this, but after the destruction of Jerusalem, it went to two groups. One was the Pharisees, um, who later became called the um, Rabbinic Judaism, or what we know for, of Judaism today. Now, that changed again over history and became many different sects of Jews. But at that point, there was only one or two. And the other was what? Two groups of Jews. Anyone want to guess who the other group of Jews was? Christians. No, the Sadducees were gone. They all became rabbinic. They were Christians. Okay? They still considered themselves Jews. Now, there was Gentiles in that mix, and there were Samaritans in that mix, and, and many more. But for a long time, the two groups of Jews would have been the Pharisees and the Christian Jews. Um, that would have been after um, the destruction. This was a time where the two separate religions were formed and basically made their split. And eventually, those Jewish Christians became known as Christians. Or, and eventually, here's a very interesting thing, there was very little Jews that were Christian. Why? Did you ever think about that? Why do you think there was very little Jews that became Christians? Maybe I'll give you a little... Well, I want to talk about that a little bit later. The mission, uh, one thing the early church did very, very well. They were great, great missionaries. One thing they did not do so well is bring peace and take the love of God like they should have. They, they had a lot of conflict. And the conflict got to the place between the Gentile and the Jewish Christians that there was, after so many generations, there was very few Jews left. They got pushed out of the church. Now, I can't say that for certain, but history would kind of tell us that way. Um, very, 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 un, very unfortunate. Gideon wondered why we're inconsistent. Now, he didn't ask the question, why we're inconsistent at Weavertown. The interesting thing about church history is you'll find inconsistency after inconsistency. These great men, and even in this era, the great men like Peter, Paul, and apostles, very, very, we look at them as heroes, they had problems, and lots of them. They were inconsistent. You read Peter's life. Oh, after, after he received the Holy Ghost, he was perfect. He was not inconsistent anymore. Is that true? No. No, he was as inconsistent as before. If you start reading, he was up and down. His, his, his view of the Gentiles was up and down. He really bummed, bummed it. And yet he is a great hero of faith. Wonderful, great man. So if you find that perfect church, anybody, that isn't inconsistent... You're not here on earth, okay? You're not around. We try. We keep struggling. We keep making mistakes. And we keep trying to grow. But history will show you the church and individuals in the church, um, great men, many, many flaws. And that's one of the things I learned when I started reading church. In fact, when I first started reading it, I had to close that book and I was like, I don't want to read this. These men are... But the... anyways, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, like I was saying, the missionary feature of the early church was one of the greatest features of the church. It was one of the greatest gifts the early church gave us. They were incredible missionaries. And Paul um, was the greatest of all of them, I think. But when the doors flew open for the world, for the Gentiles, differences arose, tempers flew, and lines were drawn. It was unfortunate some of the things that happened after that. The church did a great job of evangelizing, but didn't always do so well keeping peace. We may ask the question, what if the Gentile, Christian, and Jews would have gotten along better as time passed? The chasm between the Jews and the Christians kept wide. I don't know. And those are questions that I probably shouldn't even ask, but what if? Um, the resurrected people. 
The early church, we have leaders. Of, I'm going to just talk about two quick leaders. One, and I, I probably shouldn't even take the time to talk about it because we hit Peter already. Um, Peter, we know so much of Peter was from the gospel. In many ways, he was a great part of our lives. And how, he, how we look at the New Testament often proceeds in Peter's eyes. Um, and we think after the, he received the Holy Ghost, he was such a wonderful man. He saved 3,000, great evangelist, great man, did wonderful things. And that's all true. But he had his many mistakes. If you want to read about some of them, just read about his, the story of him and Cornelius. It's kind of interesting. Um, it's a great thing that happened there. But <laughs> Peter was very skeptical even when he went to Cornelius. When he comes to the house, I don't have time to read it. But when he comes to the house, he tells Cornelius... Um, does anybody remember what, what the first thing he told Cornelius when he came to the house? It's not really what we would say hospitable beachy Amish should say when they come into somebody's house. What did he say? Anybody know? You look it up there in Acts 20. Something like, or Acts 10. Something like when we meet Jews, we shouldn't even, or, hey, somebody find the verse in Acts 10 and somebody give me a, read that for me. Something about when we meet the, well, we as Jews should really have nothing to do with you Gentiles. Eh, nice thing to say to the person right when you meet, meet them. But, then he uses the word but, and then he goes on to say it. Um, anyway. Um, was the rock on which the Christian church is built, and later the founder of the church of Rome during the last decade, was it Peter? Now, we always think the rock was, you know, Jesus said, I'm going to build this rock upon you. Um, Jesus says, I'm going to build this rock and the gates hill will not prevail against it. And he was talking about Peter. Was he the leader into the end? A lot of people think James actually was the bishop over the church a few years after Peter. I can't say that for certain. Um, but we know, we know that James was also a great leader in the church. And Peter ended up being a leader in Rome. Um, he was the bishop of Rome before he died. Peter's dealing with the Gentiles was not so great. But to be fair with him... There was an identity crisis going on over that time. And then we have Paul and the Great Commission, or the great, and his great missionary journeys. More than any other human being, Paul was responsible for the growth of the church. And I'm not going to, maybe I'll just skip um, Paul. Uh, but I think there's a lot to be learned about who Paul was and what he did for the church. And even Paul, in his great glory, as probably the greatest missionary. I, no, not probably. He was the greatest missionary of all times. I think we can say that pretty clearly. Um, and he was not only a great missionary, he was also a great leader. Um, he brought people in to help him out, and he had a way of working with people. Um, and despite all that, Paul talked about his struggles like, there's nobody, I don't think there's anybody in Scripture that talks about their struggles as much as Paul did. So Paul was very human in his own way, um, even though he was probably one of, one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Despite all the successes we read about more of his many struggles than any other character in the Bible. He was very honest about his struggles. Okay, let's go right to the persecuted people now. Introducing the persecuted people. What time is this over? 25 after. I would, 8.25. Okay, I think I'm going to take the time to read about. Um, and by the way, a lot of you have probably seen pictures of these men. And I wish I'd have them... Um, I didn't take the time to, to show a picture of these men, but you've probably seen icons or pictures of these certain people, um, of these church leaders, but I don't have them here. Um, but we're going to start off with, um, before I start off with Ignatius, I'm going to talk about two young girls that have become very much known as the, um, kind of become the face of the persecuted 
people, especially in the Catholic Church. And there were the names. Anybody know the two, two martyrs, the two women martyrs um, that are held up as, as the face of the persecuted church in some way? Anybody hear the names Perpetuous and Felicity? Um, anyways, these are two young girls, and it tells their story. Um, and I'm just going to read their story just to introduce you to this whole persecuted church. As the Christian faith spread throughout the words, no, let me skip it. The year 2002, Emperor Serenius issued a decree against, against, conversa- uh, against conversion to Judaism or Christianity. All new converts in North Africa were to be executed unless they publicly performed a sacrifice to them. Perpetua and her servant Felicitas and three men had not yet completed the catechism could make a sacrifice to honor the head of state, but they refused. They knew there was a price, a price to pay. Christ dying a mortal's death is considered a glorious entry into heaven, but dealing with family members is pure anguish. Perpetua's father, or Perpetua's Husband, who is not mentioned in the account, had perhaps died or abandoned her due to her newfound faith. The painful testimony below begins after she and Felicitas and the two men were confined to prison. A few days after the reports were abroad that they were to be tried. Also, my father returned from the city, spent with weariness, and he came up to me to cast down my face, saying, Have pity, daughter, on my gray hairs. Have pity on my father. If I, had, if I am worthy to be called father by you, if you... If with these hands I have brought you into this flower of youth and I have preferred you before all your brothers, give me not over to the reproach of men. Look upon your brothers. Look upon your mother, your sisters. Look upon your baby. Who will endure to live after you? Give up your resolution. Do not destroy us all together. This he said, fatherly is... This he said, fatherly in his love kissing my hands and growling my feet. And with tears he named me, my daughter, but lady. And he went from me, and he went from me very sorrowful. It's just a story um, that is of, of her father coming to her and begging her to give up her faith. Soon after, when a report goes out that this indeed is the execution day, Perpetua's father returns and begs again. Sacrifice her mercy on the child he pleased. Then he steps forward to forcefully prevent her from lying down her life. At this point, the officer begins beating the old men. The execution having been delayed, Perpetua begs to see her baby. Her father refuses, thinking such a denial might yet cause her to change her mind. In the meantime, Felicity, now eight months pregnant, fears that the execution of Christians in the area by wild animals might be carried out without her. So she prays, and and the story goes, she actually had her baby that next day, and so she had the opportunity to be executed with the rest. On the day of the execution, before they are led to the arena, the five prisoners are baptized. Then that Perpetua might have been spared due to her social class and gender is false hope for her aging father. The men had been brought into the arena, first to be killed by wild animals, a bear, a leopard, and a boar. This spectacle was typically a real crowd pleaser, but the gory torture of the young woman turns the frenzied spectators from cheering to jeering. They begin shouting, enough. Perpetua is then taken to the gladiator and beheaded, whether due to lack of skill, but anyways, I'm not even going to read it, it's so terrible. Um, The gladiators tried to kill her and couldn't get her killed and um, it goes on and tell the story about her. Those stories about Perpetua and Felicia are, are kind of renowned stories about this age. And they go to show the torture and, the, and the, some of the horrible things that happened um, in this time period. Okay, let's go to the first of the persecuted people or fathers, Ignatius. He was the bishop of Antioch. What, what do we know about Antioch? 
That's where the missionary stores, where Paul, um, was, Paul started as a missionary. Um, he believed to be the little one, this Ignatius is believed to be the little one who sat in Jesus' lap. Now that's a little bit of legend, but it's a connection to Jesus. He distanced himself to Judaism. He sought to bring all the Christians under one universal church. Because there was so much fighting at that time in the church, he decided we need to create one church with structure and with um, roles and bring it all together into one church. Um, does anybody know what the name of that one universal church is? Or does anybody know what a universal ch- name of a universal church is? Catholic. Okay. Now that's not the Catholic church as we know it today because the Catholic church didn't start till maybe 500 years later. But one universal church, he got the idea, he brought the idea together that we need to come together um, as Christians and um, be one church. Um, he was trying to bring all the churches and all the splinters together. He was one, <clears throat> quote he made, whenever the bishop appears, there let, there let the people be. And wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic church. He was also very strict about who was allowed as members of the church. He fought unsound doctrine. He boldly challenged the emperor and welcomed his martyr's crown. That's one thing he was known for. Um, next one is Polycarp. And I'll just go over Polycarp quickly. He was the bishop of Samaria, of Smyrna, between A.D. 69 and 155. He was a friend of Ignatius and took on his leadership. Unlike Ignatius, he feared persecution. But John, <clears throat> writing to the church of Smyrna, remember the church of Smyrna? What did John, this is a few years earlier, wrote to the church of Smyrna. What did he say about the church of Smyrna? It was going to be a faithful church, but it was going to be persecuted, and that prophecy came true, and he was the bishop over that time. They became a very persecuted church, and he was their bishop. He often spoke and wrote of the dangers of materialism, but he also wrote and vehemently rejected the heresies of that day. He debated and fought against Macronone, who believed in the writings of Paul, but rejected the Old Testament. This is one of the heresies. So upset was Polycarp at Marconia that he assailed him to his face, and he said this, You are the firstborn of Satan. Right to his face. Um, one of the things Polycarp is most known for is his martyrdom at a, young, at a very old age, and I'm not going to tell you that story. But Polycarp is one of the um, early church fathers. Next one is Justin Martyr. He's an apologist for pagans. He's one of my favorites. Um, between 100 and 165 AD, he was an adult converted to Christianity. He grew up in a very wealthy home, well-educated, and retained his wealthy property. And retained his pro- wealthy property. He and his philosopher's gown after his conversion. He kept his property, and he stayed a philosopher. His conversion was around 130 AD. He was so convinced when he was converted by some old fisherman, um, he tried so many different Greek philosophies, and he was so convinced when he found Jesus Christ that he wanted to convince everybody else. Um, He became a Christian evangelist. He debated, wrote many skilled writings, became well-known, and he became one of the first Christian apologists. He says his Greek philosophy was his schoolmaster that brought him to Christ. He defends Christ on two fronts, Judaism and paganism. So he argued with the Judaizers, and he argued with the pagans, and he brought many of them to Christ. Um, He wrote many articles and books about Judaism and um, paganism. 
But holding Greek philosophy high and making his faith appear reasonable was not enough for the Roman emperor. And in 165, he was arrested and killed. And his last statement was this. No one who is rightly minded turns from true beliefs to false. Um, next one is Irenaeus. He was a bishop of France between 138 and 202 AD. He became a, lead, a leading theologian. He wrote many articles on mission outreach, apologetics, and persecution. He stepped in as a bishop at a very dangerous time, but the, but the Roman Empire was not the only thing he struggled with. One of the biggest things he struggled with was the Gnostics. He wrote a very popular book used throughout the centuries called Against Heresies. This book laid out the parameters of the true faith against counterfeit religions. He was at Polycourt's martyrdom at a young teenager and was inspired by him, linking him back to the apostolic church. Arrhenius' greatest work in his battle against the Gnostics, if he loses this battle, the whole Christian church falls apart. Arrhenius was not only a defender of the faith, but he was also a peacemaker. It's interesting. This man would defend the faith and he would fight for the faith, but when it came to peace in the church, he believed that was a very, very important part of the church. I'm going to just go one more person, and then we're going to close Tertullian. What, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? He was the opposite of Anthenius. I'm sorry, opposite of Justin Martyr. He did not believe. He was actually taught by the Romans, and his dad was a Roman general. He was very, very structured, and he was big on bringing structure back in the church. He said the church has become way too materialistic and too structured. In fact, he was so much about structure in the church that he left the church eventually and became a part of a cult that was very, very strict. Um, before he died, he came back. Um, but he, did a lo- he had a lot of writings that we still... Writings on marriage. Um, a very famous quote that he made that we still um, use today is the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, anyways, another, his writings is ones we use a lot. And there's a lot about every one of these men. I'm not going to, I think we'll end with that. But there's a lot about every one of these men that we still hold to in our church today. Or that we wouldn't, even, like the Trinity. Tertullian was the one who came up with the idea of the Trinity. Um, and the interesting thing is most of the things that they argued against or they tried to um, that they tried to the heresies that they tried to keep out of the church are here again today but if it wouldn't have been for men like these men where would we be as a church today who would have carried on the church the amazing thing about these men is not their perfection but is their imperfection and a lot of these imperfections that these great men had Despite, I should, despite all these imperfections these great men had, we have a church today. Like a man like Tertullian, um, he left the faith for a cult, came back. But despite all those things he did wrong, and you'll find many, many of these men, they have a lot of good things, but if you read closely about them, you'll read some things that are hard to accept and understand. Anyways, tomorrow we're going to talk about creeds and councils, and we're going to get right into Constantine um, at 313.